So um, I was having dinner the other night and uh, with my wife and another couple, old friends, and we were having this dinner, and it was a nice dinner and nice conversation and all. And somewhere at the end, near the end of the dinner, right before we were going to leave, the man looked at me and he said, well, how are you? You know, how are you? We've been talking about a lot of different things and about different, they were all talking about themselves and I hadn't said much. And he said, how are you? And I said, I don't know. And I said to my wife, how am I? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, you're, you're, um, let's see, you're lonely, you're feeling a little melancholy, um, you're a little lost. I said, oh yeah, that's how I am. That's how I am. <laughs> and, um, and it was true, it was a little, I was a little startled that she would tell them that, but, but uh, <laughs> that she's... So, and, and um, what was interesting is I realized it was true and I realized that there's some cyclical experience of that that I have from time to time. And I realized it was related to Dharma practice. And so I thought I would talk about the relationship that I saw and then broaden the topic a little to talk about how we assess our Dharma practice, how we make meaning of our Dharma practice, or how we judge our Dharma practice based on how we're feeling. And what I realized was, oh, it's true that I have, and, and I'll tell you, one of the ways I noticed this feeling, which at the time my wife said was lost and lonely and melancholy, is often, sometimes I'll come in here, I'll come to group and I'll say, I have nothing to say, you have to ask me questions. And then people will ask questions and I have plenty to say. But the feeling is, I don't have, I've said it all, I don't have anything to say, I don't know anything. And so I'm not even sure what I'm doing here exactly. So ask me, help me out here. <laughs> and I realized that that feeling, that whole, set, that whole mood that we're, I'm trying to describe a little bit, um, often indicates something that's happening in my practice. And part of what's happening is some loss of self. And it's not a dramatic, oh, my self is gone and all of a sudden I look like a statue like this. It's more like, oh, I feel like I don't know who I am and I don't know, well, what am I doing or how to do it or what. And, but what I find is when I actually speak the Dharma, I feel more connected to the deepest Dharma. I feel more connected to something, I feel more... Um, confident and clear about the truth of the Dharma. But, but my own sense of knowing myself is a little not clear. And it's a paradox that I'm describing. And the paradox relates a little bit to that old blues song that I've mentioned about, that has that line about everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die. And it's true about enlightenment or awakening or freedom. We have a lot of projections 
on what it looks like. We have a lot of ideal, ideas about what it looks like. We have a lot of ideals, right? Generally, it looks like this. It looks like this statue, usually not so small. It looks a little, little bigger, right? Like we're going to get enlightened and then we're going to end up And talking like this when we give the Dharma talk because we're so <laughs> awakened by the Buddha. And the reality might not match that image. It's a beautiful image, the image of the Buddha. What, it, what it's an image of is not a person exactly. It's the image of a state of being, a quality of being. And that quality of being is, is lovely, but we end up thinking physically or emotionally we're going to look like that. And I think one of the... So, so what it made me think about was, well, how do we assess our practice? Because I know for myself, when I start feeling lonely and lost and not clear, I start thinking something's wrong. I start thinking, oh, I've been practicing 25 years, why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. And in fact, I've seen it happen enough to begin to trust that experience. Actually, that's not quite accurate. Let me be a little more accurate. It's not that I trust it. I don't know what else to do but practice with it at this point. And I trust my practice. And so it's not really that I, tr I trust, like, oh, oh, great, I'm lonely and melancholy and I know that's a good thing. No, it's, it's actually not like that. It's more like I find myself in that place and all I know to do is to actually stay present with it. And what I've seen now over time and years and some repetition is that there's a freedom that comes with trusting or knowing that what Trungpa Rinpoche said is true, that every mind state is workable. Every mind state is workable. And not only is it workable, but the process, the cycle, the uh, unfoldment of awakening includes those mind states. They're not a mistake. They're not a problem in the way we think. They're not we're doing it wrong. The real question is, how do we relate to them? How do we relate to ourselves? And so I thought I would read you a little bit from the Progress of Insight. And the Progress of Insight is Mahasi Sayadaw, in whose tradition we practice, one of the main lineage holders in our tradition of the Insight meditation community in America. Um, and Mahasi Sayadaw was very, very famous um, Burmese monk who was considered an arahat, a, a fully enlightened being. And, um, and Mahasi was radical in his time because in the 40s and maybe the 50s, I'm not sure of the time, in the last century, he began opening up the monastery for lay people to come and sit 10-day retreats and longer retreats and to teach them intensive meditation outside of the monastic um, setting outside of being a monastic and that was a radical act back then you know we kind of take it for granted right we're all lay practitioners practicing going off on retreat coming back that didn't happen a hundred years ago that's actually a relatively new development in Buddhism and Mahasi had a lot to do with that 
And at some point he wrote this outline, he, he outlined a certain archetypal progression of awakening that some people go through. It's like some people as they practice, and you can't make this happen at all. I just want to be very clear. You can't force this at all. But there's a way that you plug in or you get plugged in to this archetypal progression and it will take you to stream entry or the first level of enlightenment. There are four levels in the, in the Theravada. But one of the things that characterizes this progression is a lot of feelings, experiences, that while the practitioner is in them, they think they're doing it all wrong. They think they're making, they've made a big mistake. And so three of the stages here are the awareness of fear, of fearfulness, terror it's called, or the knowledge of misery, dukkha, suffering, or the knowledge of disgust. And these are very, very um, distinct experiences that people go through. Um, and one goes through in many little ways, but can come very strongly when you're tapped into this archetypal progression. And they're all three are characterized by, what the hell am I doing here? This is not what I signed up for. This is not, oh, I thought meditation, you open, your heart opens, your mind opens, you're free, you're, you walk about a foot above the ground after you get enlightened. But these, three stages in which he talks about and he says um, let's see if I can see mm. I thought he said here So he just talks about, at some point he says, there's this knowledge of how, how quickly things actually arise and pass. And this will happen at some point on retreat. Things start coming going very quickly, very quickly. We just see that a moment is literally that. It's just a moment. It's literally empty. And again, this is at a certain level of practice. And he says, and he says that at that time, it, 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 things start dissolving. And there, oh, maybe I didn't say that. There's the knowledge of dissolution. So it's dissolution, fear, misery, disgust. <laughs> Does that sound like enlightenment to you? I mean, and, and he says, at that time, one's mind is gripped by fear and seems helpless. But this is not a bad phase in practice. And one of the skillful ways as a teacher, one works with it, is to actually tell the person, no, this is good. And the person's like, are you kidding? They're like, this is good? I'm totally afraid. No, no, it's good what's happening. Keep sitting with it. And then they go from there into misery, right? <laughs> oh, great. Um, I don't feel afraid anymore. I just feel miserable now. And I, and these don't always come in order like this. This is just the archetype. 
But I'll just tell you one experience I had. I actually had where I was having the best time on retreat. I was just having a great retreat and it, everything was easy and I felt uh, just every breath and the air on my face and the walking. and I mean, it was just a lovely, lovely retreat. And I felt so light. I felt very light. And at some point, the, my teacher, who likes to play around, he said, I'm trying to remember exactly how he said it. Basically, he said, incline your mind to nirvana, to nirvana, to, to freedom. Incline your mind to nirvana. So, you know, that's a cool instruction. Okay, I'll incline my mind. What it, I, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I liked getting, nobody had ever given me that instruction before. So, okay, I'm going to incline my mind to nirvana. And I felt a little puffed up, right? It's like, you know, okay, go for the goods now. You know, you've, you've, you've done your work. Go for the goodie. And I remember um, I walked away from the interview and I just felt a little like, wow, I'm going to have, I'm going to get enlightened, right? And nirvana. (laughs) And I remember, and I looked up at this tree and I expected to see how beautiful it was. And it, and I just saw suffering. And it scared me, actually. I, I, I tend to do things a little backwards, so. But it was like the misery, it was the weirdest thing. It was like I looked at the tree and I just saw, oh, my happiness will not be found in this world in a certain way. And it was, it shocked me because I was having so much, such an easy and light retreat. He says, look for Nibbana, boom, misery, suffering, dukkha is what came. And it's not a mistake. And so then, and just then the knowledge of disgust is also something that happens really commonly on retreat at a certain depth of retreat. And often the disgust is a little, it's a little physical and it's a little odd. I'll I'll say it. It can come in a lot of different ways. People have visions sometimes. You start seeing everybody as bones or or you see that everybody's going to die or or you see... um, well, you'd start noticing you're sitting and you start noticing from every orifice and hole in the body, like the pores, you're excreting something. <laughs> and, and it's like, ooh. It's like, it's, it's a little disgusting all of a sudden. Like, you know, the body is beautiful and it's the vehicle for awakening. But at a certain point in practice, this can happen, and it's not a bad thing. It's just like, all of a sudden you realize the ears, there's a little wax, and there's snot, there's saliva, and there's water from the eyes, and sweat, and all kinds of other stuff happening. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like, oh, it's a, it's a little bit, oh, is this me? Is this secreting body me? Is part of what happened. And it's a little like, ugh. And you get over it, though. You can totally enjoy the body. Don't worry. Don't. I don't want to scare anybody. Here. I love bodies, but but I've had that experience of like, eek. Anyhow, I, I'm saying this because it's not talked about much. You know, a lot of talk is is inspiring, right? You know disillusion, misery, disgust, fear. That's not exactly inspiring. Yet, the trajectory of practice um, is one where this naturally happens at some point or points 
or even cyclically. Maybe not to this degree, but there's some what's called a disenchantment that happens and that actually needs to happen because we're enchanted. We're enchanted. And part of awakening is to awaken out of our enchantment. Carl Jung said, enlightenment is not imagining figures of light, but making the darkness conscious. So we want to see our enchantment and we want to see, and part of, and it's not just like, oh, we see that we're enchanted and then we're free. There's actually an odd process that happens of disenchantment and letting go. And we'll feel the the grasping, letting go, and it's not so comfortable. And it's not meant to be comfortable. It's not supposed to be comfortable. We've been attached for a long time to our ideas, to our beliefs, to our history, to our sense of self. And that letting go, it doesn't just happen like, oh, there's my self is gone and I'm free. It, and it can, it can. I don't want to say it can't. But generally, for most of us, that's not how it happens. It's a slower, ongoing process, more like wearing away a stone of its edges until it becomes a jewel around in some ways. And so one of the things these stages characterize that I described that underlie this are deepening a deepening sense of emptiness or selflessness. And it's natural that that wouldn't be so comfortable. And that's why that, that blues tune is really good. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We all want to be awakened, but we all want to be there when it happens. Right? We all want to be, not only do we want to be there, we want to be able to tell everybody about it. <laughs> well, look, I'm totally empty now. Right. <laughs> and of course, we're projecting our ideas onto enlightenment itself. And, and it's not even, there doesn't need to be any judgment about that or any criticism. We, we couldn't do it any other way. We can't do it any other way. That we're always projecting our ideas until we get present, until we get here, until we get in the moment. Because that's the only where place of non-projection. As long as we're fantasizing, imagining, wishing, worrying, you know, figuring out, planning what our enlightenment's going to look like, it's all an idea. It's why the present moment is in, in, invaluable, inseparable from awakening. Because there's this immediacy here that we can begin to trust, even if at times it's flavored with loneliness, lostness, melancholy, disgust, fear. Those aren't a problem exactly. They're, for us, they're part of the terrain and the trajectory and the path of awakening, mostly just because they're human. They're not even so special in a certain way. It's just our humanness is the vehicle, is the path. Not getting around it, not denying it, not 
having to imagine some becoming some being of light. We already are a being of light. That's the, the real truth. What do you think is knowing this talk? Except the light of your mind, the light of consciousness, the light of awareness. What do you think is being mindful? I mean, mostly, you know, usually conventionally we think, oh, I'm being mindful. But there may be some other way to begin to understand what's happening here. That light we seek, you know, we are what we seek, the wise ones say. We are what we seek, and it's true. What we seek is not far away, is not out there. And that's why we turn our attention here. That's why we pay attention here. And, and the Dharma, really, and we, I could just almost equate it to life, has this amazing um, alchemy of wearing away, if we're open, and this is important, if we're open, and if we've developed the skills to work with the um, dukkha of misery, and the fear of fearfulness, and the, and the um, uh, sadness of loneliness, if we've developed the skills to open to that, then it will begin to wear away our ideas about ourselves. It will begin to rub, rub against that construction, that habit, that history of who we've been taking ourselves to be, what we've been taking ourselves to be. And, it, and if we can stay present, it will begin to reveal the Dharma, the Dharma that's sitting right in your seat and nowhere else, always right in your seat, available to us right where we find ourselves. This is from Hafiz. He says, don't surrender your loneliness too soon. Don't surrender your loneliness too soon. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine beings can. There is something missing in my heart tonight that makes my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. We don't, often we, there may be a confusion when we talk about freedom from suffering as being one of the goals of the path and one of the fruits of the path, we think then that all the suffering goes away. And that may not be how it is. It may be that we come to appreciate our suffering, love our suffering, see that our suffering is part of the transformative uh, pathway to freedom. Don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it ferment and season you as few human or divine beings can. Partly the flavor of what I'm talking about um, always brings to mind the word uh, humble. That there's a, it's, the Dharma will be humbling. Not all the time. And I want to be clear here. You know, the Dharma is fun. And the Dharma is joyous, and it's pleasurable, and it's beautiful, and it's delightful. But it's also this other part, too, that I'm speaking about tonight. And I, I'm actually a big, you know, I, I, I love to practice. And it, I love quiet, or 
contentment or uh, peace. I mean, those all come too. Joy, uh, boundless love, compassion, that's all part. But one of the things, at least I've seen in my own practice, is what I said. I think, oh, here's this lonely and, and hopeless and lost feeling, and I think I'm doing it wrong at that point. And partly I'm hoping to disabuse all of us of that idea. That we can begin to see, as the Taoists say, that the path consists of 10,000 joys and sorrows which generally I think of as 5,000 each, right? <laughs> so, you know, I know in my, in my uh, fantasy, I wish it was, you know, 9,998 joy and a couple sorrows. But, but really, that, the whole path is this human life as it is. And of course, the beauty of that, the beauty of it, is we can start blame, stop blaming ourselves Stop criticizing ourselves. Stop expecting some fantasy, some enchanted being to arise here who doesn't have any of the 5,000 sorrows. But we can start to see that there is a part of us or a capacity of us in our maturity to open to that whole, to the whole picture, the whole show, to really see this is an odd reference, but it was, comes to mind what William Burroughs said, see what's on the end of our fork. That's how he came up with the name Naked Lunch for his book, Naked Lunch. He said he realized he could see what was on the end of his fork. And we want to see it, whether it's a nice, you know, <laughs> salad or <laughs> something else. <laughs> mm. So part, part of what I'm pointing at here is also the ability to look at our practice honestly and objectively and, and understand the difference between an objectivity and being critical. And I think that's a hard place for people. And partly this talk was inspired by the day long yesterday was somebody asked about how do you, how do you evaluate how you're doing? You know, and, and I've been teaching a beginning class, and of course, people in the beginning class are like evaluating every five minutes how their meditation's going. And one of the important things that if you've meditated at all that we come to see is important is actually to know how to evaluate in due time. But like any art, we have to give ourselves the time to learn the basics of the art, the technique of the art, the skills of the art, and let the art begin to permeate us so that we can express that art. And so one of the stock answers that I give is really just um, quoting the Dalai Lama who says, of course, he says, it's, if you want to know how your practice is doing, it's good to check about every five years. Right? And every five years you should really evaluate. You know, are you a little kinder? Are you a little more patient? Are you a little more compassionate? Are you a little uh, more mindful? Are you a little more caring? And if you are, then keep going. Okay? <laughs> um, I was reading an article from Bhikkhu Bodhi called Taking Stock of Oneself. 
And um, he says here, honest self-assessment is one of the most vital steps in Dharma practice. And it is also one of the most difficult. What makes it difficult is the radically new perspective that must be adopted to undertake an investigation of oneself and the barriers to be penetrated to arrive at truthful self-understanding. Because we're not just observing an, an external person or thing, but we're observing instead the seat of observation itself. We're turning the attention and we're paying attention to ourself and our observation. That, and he says, that most elusive center from which we gaze out upon the world, and we are doing so in a mode which casts all its motives and projects in a critical light. Not critical judgmental, critical assessment. Okay, how am I doing? Am I really paying attention when I'm meditating or not? How am I doing after, you know, whatever period of time when you do assess, which generally we don't listen to the Dalai Lama. We tend to assess more frequently about our practice. And then to be able to look at what filters we're assessing ourselves through. And one of the keys here, and, and, the, and the way I think about it, and the way I find helpful is, Am I being objective or am I being judgmental? Am I being objective or am I being judgmental? And it's actually very easy to tell. If I feel bad, I'm being judgmental. If I feel bad about my practice, any way, shape, or form, I'm being judgmental. If I see that I'm not fulfilling my practice in some way or I'm weak in some area and, I, and then I want to respond to it, then I'm being objective. But if I feel bad, that, then you can be sure you're being judgmental of yourself. And, that, and the reason that's not helpful is because it's not helpful. <laughs> it's just not helpful. Critical self-assessment, you know, really looking objectively, is helpful. Feeling bad about ourselves is not helpful we feel bad enough. If we weren't suffering, actually, we wouldn't come to the Dharma. So our own compassion for ourselves is essential. Our own kindness, our own generosity about how we treat ourselves and relate to ourselves in practice is essential. It, it will be the ground for the Dharma to unfold. That if we can bring this generosity, this dana this generous spirit to ourselves in our practice, then the Dharma will reveal itself. But in the self-judgment, in the harshness, in the pejorative criticism, the Dharma can't unfold. So for me, to bring it back just to that first piece, when I see I'm feeling this way and then the judgment comes in, oh, you've been meditating 30 years and now, you know, why are you feeling like this? That, that's not an accurate judgment. That, that's not an openness to what, what's actually happening. No, if I say, oh, I'm actually feeling this way, what happens if I stay present with it? What happens if I get curious about it, interested in it, open to it? And what's actually happening, maybe I don't know. Remember, it's humbling, the Dharma. Are, we, we always assume not only 
do we know, but we think we should know what's happening. And Dharma practice has one of the, one of the most highly valued qualities in Dharma practice is not knowing. And it's, it's the basis for this freshness or this immediacy, this aliveness, um, the truth of the moment to reveal itself. Our knowing will veil reality. Our knowing, when we think we know, we're not actually open. If we think, even if we think we know what a breath is, then we're not really totally open to the breath in that moment. Because we know and we don't know. And in Zen they say not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing, actually I was reading the, the actual um, case in the Blue Cliff Records and it said um, not knowing is nearest is how they put it. But sometimes it's translated as not knowing is most intimate. And that intimacy of, of the moment, of now, it can be here right now Right here as you're talking, listening, just not, and it doesn't mean you don't know my words. It means you don't reify your body or your heart or your mind. You don't, con- we don't concretize reality. But we're open to the freshness, the aliveness of our body and the response of our heart and the aliveness, intelligence, creativity of our mind right in this moment. Or it might be the quietness of your mind in this moment. Or it might be the agitation or the reaction to the talk in this moment. doesn't matter what it is. Our openness, our mindfulness, our willingness to be present with the living reality is the doorway to freedom, is the doorway to the truth, is the doorway to the Dharma. And... And this openness to or this appreciation of the various states that we might move through is not only important um, um, for us individually in practice but as a community as we relate to other people. One of the things that turns us away from other people are unpleasant experiences, right? We think this shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't be having a hard time with our partner, our children, or our parents, or our friends, or our colleagues. And so we close down. We turn away. And I'm not even going to, like, you know, I can go to the next level, right? Politics. You know, countries. I mean, we we see the suffering that comes when we turn away from others. And there's a story of Ajahn Sumedho, who's in our lineage is the eldest Western teacher in the Ajahn Chah lineage that we are also part of. We're really part of two lineages, Ajahn Chah and, Ajahn, and um, Mahasi Sayadaw. And, um, and Sumedho was, um, went to Asia in the Peace Corps and met Ajahn Chah and took robes and has been a monk now for, I don't know, 48 years or something. And he's a beautiful guy. If you can ever get some time with Ajahn Sumedho, he has this smile. It's like The Mask, the movie The Mask. He has this smile that just jumps off his face. And he's, uh, and he's totally honest about his delusion. 
<laughs> he's very, he's just so forthcoming about stuff. He, I'll tell you a couple little stories. Uh, one is, at some point, he was having problems with the nuns, right? And he, he leads a number of monasteries in, in uh, Europe. Uh, he's the head of, a lot of monasteries have come out through him. And the nuns order, um, which was not, uh, which he helped found in the West, at a certain point, actually, I should put it this way: a lot of the nuns were having problems with Ajahn Sumedho. That was that's a better way to say it, and they were letting him know. And uh, he was like, he said, you know, he was like, you know, what's wrong with these people, right? You know, how come they're having so much problems? And they, but they were, and they were talking to him. They were confronting him, and so he didn't know what to do. And he realized. And this was true. He said he hadn't had much experience with women in his life. He'd had a little experience when he was a young man. And he'd been a monk. He'd mostly lived with men. And he said, you know, I just didn't know how to relate to women too much. So I thought about, well, what to do? Hmm, what should I do? He said, oh, I'll go live with the women for a while. And so he moved into the nuns' quarters. And he lived there. And every day he made time for them to come and tell him exactly what, what he was doing wrong. And he said, and he said it was hard, you know, he's, he's like been practicing forever and he thinks of himself as, you know, somewhat awakened or at least a little bit liberal or something. And, <laughs> and, uh, and the nuns are just kind of ripping into him a little, you know, he's this, he's that. He said they would say, you're this and you're that. And he, would, he said, I would be thinking, no, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. He said, but I really just decided to listen. And he sat there and he listened and he listened. And he said he didn't even have to do anything, but at a certain point it transformed. And partly it was just in his willingness to listen, which is always an important thing in conflict. But anyhow, that's, this is all on the side, that story. I'm sorry. But, um, but one of the, the story I was going to tell you was when Ajahn Chah came to England and Ajahn Sumedho had started this monastery and had a number of monks and nuns and Ajahn Chah's there for a few days and he said, well, how, how's the community getting along? And uh, Ajahn Sumedho replied, he said, people are getting along fine. And Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, well, there won't be much wisdom here then, huh? <laughs> right? That's not what we would usually think, right? We think, oh, getting along fine is the most important thing. But Ajahn Chah, who is a very wise man, understood that our authenticity and our relatedness as human beings includes a certain kind of friction at times. And so that's not to be, we don't need to be afraid of that or deny that. or We don't want to pretend because we're Buddhists, so we never have a problem with one another. Actually, that's not good practice. Good practice is being able to be authentic and have a problem and stay present with that problem and stay present with that person we might have a problem with. And so, um, somebody was telling me today, I was, we were talking in the senior students group, and somebody said at Plum Village, she was talking with one of the nuns, who said her practice was to see in whatever way she turned away from any person she met. 
And she knew that if she turned away, in, not, not exterior, but internally, that if she closed down or turned away in any way, shape, or form, that was where she needed to practice. So that's an interesting way to begin to assess our practice. And we may not be where that nun is. Maybe that's not the right assessment. But that, I, that really caught my ear. Like, oh, that's a very interesting way to assess. And she didn't say she criticized herself or was judgmental of herself for it. But that's how she knew, oh, here's a place for me to practice. Here's an area where I'm not free, where I'm not totally open. And, you know, for some of us, maybe that seems like, well, that seems so far away. Like, that seems like, don't worry about it. See where you are and see where the edge of your practice is. See what kind of assessment you can make for where are you free and where are you not free. And start to look at that as the edge of your practice. Because the idea is not to measure yourself up against anyone else. And, it's, and, that, and that itself, that itself is a tremendous freedom to let go of the comparing mind. And it's, it's doable. It's definitely doable. And really, all the freedom that the Buddha talked about is doable. He said it this a few different times, a number of times in the scriptures. He said, if it was not possible, I would not teach it. If freedom was not possible, I would not teach it. But because it is possible, I do teach it. So one other piece I want to say about this, which has to do with a phrase that I used at the day long yesterday and that I use sometimes here, and it's about the metabolization of our experience. And, and a little bit what I'm talking about tonight is the metabolization of our experience. That there's different ways to get to heaven. For some people, they get to heaven through transcendence. And that's, that's a valid way to go. Um, I believe for us as householders and lay people that the way to get to heaven is through the transformation of our experience or the metabolization of our experience. And really what this word metabolization or transformation is pointing to is what's truly understood to be contemplative or spiritual tantra. This is not Tantra as some like esoteric sexual experience. This is Tantra meaning that what, um, that uh, Tantra is sometimes one of the definitions would be um, what's in the way is the way. What's in the way is the way. That it's not by getting rid of the so-called defilements that we're free, but by practicing with the so-called defilements, digesting, metabolizing our anger, our fear, our um, aversion, um, our um, confusion that we awaken. 
that it's not by jumping past it or creating some perfect self, but by using our human life, using what's been given to us in each moment as the path to freedom. Tantra, I think literally in the Sanskrit it means to weave, that we weave everything into practice. And so the metabolization is not to judge experience or not to be afraid of experience, but to learn, the, learn how to chew, really. Learn how to chew our experience. You know, some food, you need to really chew it a lot. Some food goes down real easy. Some food you really have to take your time. Or sometimes you have to be like a cow. You even have to regurgitate it and chew it again. Or regurgitate. <laughs> have you noticed that? Right? There's some experience that doesn't get digested in the first shot or in one sitting. But actually can take a long time. And that's not a mistake. It's not a problem. And actually I think a cow's a really good image because they're very patient with their digesting of what's needed in order for life to happen. And this is, and, and I think of metabolization as partly the other way I think about it as, um, it's like a child growing up has to metabolize certain experience, master certain experiences in order to go to the next level of maturation. And for us as human beings, there is the potential for a maturation that is beyond the conventional idea of what it means to be mature. You know, generally what it means to be mature is you can take care of yourself, feed yourself, clothe yourself, house yourself, relate a bit, you know, you know, communicate with people. You know, and then you're considered mature generally. And then there's certain levels of that. But the Buddha the Buddha realized uh, another level, another octave to human maturity that was beyond the ego-centered, self-centered, ego-bound sense of being a mature person. It's really the next level. And the next level is, be, is not about me or mine or I, but about something more profound, something more complete, something more whole something more innate to who we are, something a little deeper. And so in the digestion, the, the nutriment that comes brings forth a maturity that's rooted in love, rooted in kindness, rooted in clarity, rooted in honesty, rooted in what's called the, the bliss of blamelessness. That our intention, our heart, our, our mind begins to get purified. Not purified by being good, but purified by being real and being able to be with the reality of who we are.
This is, I don't, I'm not sure who this poem is from, but I'm going to read you a few lines. Help us to be the always hopeful gardeners of the spirit who know that without darkness nothing comes to birth as without light nothing flowers. Let's sit for a minute before we end. practice here this evening and the merit of our practice, may we offer it freely, gladly, for the benefit of beings in this world and every world. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with gladness, goodness, ease of well-being. May all beings be free from suffering, the suffering of fear, suffering of sorrow, suffering of war, suffering of racism, the suffering of division, the suffering of ignorance, the suffering of greed. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together, realizing the truth of our nature, our Buddha nature the truth of wisdom and compassion. May we realize the highest fruit, the highest goodness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.